a Highline podcast. We live in a complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. We are here live. Against all odds. All right, guys, we have (laughs) been on a call now, 30 minutes together, and we haven't even said hi yet. Hi. Hi. We've been dealing with some technical difficulties. Like Chilean (laughs) miners, we have emerged... (laughs) <laughs> in the dark underbelly of the earth. We're here yes. now. Yes. That's sad because they're going to get a few hours of sleep and then go back to work. Mm. No, no, I'm okay. My thing is about the miners that were trapped underground for like weeks at a time. And then they like rescued oh, the big Chilean miner thing. This, this feels it's an outdated reference for sure. But this, like this. <laughs> the movie 33 with Antonia Banderas was based on the story. And, uh, it was a good movie. Anyway, Cat, mm, welcome yes. back to the bench, my friend. It feels good to be back. Where are you? I'm just, this is hard-hitting journalism, and I must know where you're at with salsa cereal. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things I wanted to comment on. Oh, yes. Because as you were describing that, I was listening to last week's episode, and as you were describing like building up to what you do with the crumbs left over in your tortilla chip bag with your salsa. Yeah. I was thinking I do the same fucking thing. Whoa. But what I do, I tend to have like a perfect ratio typically with my chips and my salsa. So they usually start to run out at the same time. So it's usually an appropriate ratio to just dump the rest of the chip crackles or cracklins into the salsa container and then i eat it with a spoon straight in the container see i take <laughs> yeah. it i take it the next level and i actually get like a bowl and you put spoon. it in a bowl yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i'll try to avoid the spoon for as long as i can until sure. i'm just like getting salsa all over my knuckles oh right. that is and so then, annoying there, there and then, is <laughs> then i'll switch then i'll switch to a spoon and really i just driven out of like a desire to not waste anything totally Exactly. Just mostly because I'm like, maybe I'm cheap. I don't know. I just like to make sure I get my money's worth. (laughs) So I'm like, (laughs) cheap does not equal frugal. And you you are frugal. frugal. Yes. I'm frugal. (laughs) I have some friends who are going to be like, "Mm." (laughs) we're all frugal in some ways and not frugal in other ways. So that's true. I have my moments. It's fine. The other thing I wanted to comment on. Is the weird food habits. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. I had I had one weird food habit that came to mind. Oh, great. You're not going to like roast us strange. for hours. No. Oh, not right. at all. No. <laughs> the eggs the one, and the mushing <laughs> burgers and stuff. Right. You freaks. No. Um, Rude. When I was little, I used to love plain white rice with ketchup. Um, Butter, salt. And ketchup. Butter, salt, and ketchup. <laughs> yeah. It was like one of those like bachelor things my dad would cook for me when there was nothing else to eat. And I kind of mm. liked it. Mm. And right. then I'm into it. Years later, like a decade later, 
I had come back from like a backpacking trip or something and some trip. And I was like at my friend's house and there was nothing to eat, but there was fucking leftover like white rice and it was super late. Yeah. Right. I'm going to like, I'm going to like venture back. I'm going to revisit that and see what that's like. And you know what? I liked it again. Stand by it. Yeah. (laughs) I can't, I can't make fun. I don't like ketchup that much. I mean, but I definitely (laughs) used to eat plain white rice with barbecue sauce. That's now that's like gourmet for me. That's like taking it to the next level. I remember liking that. That's good. It is good. Then I'd like fry some turkey breasts and then eat like barbecue rice with turkey. Or like pork. Yeah. I mean, then you're you're getting into like real meal territory. You're just just making a meal. So here's the thing is rice is such a delightful canvas on which we all can paint our own masterpiece. That's right. Because I'll tell you what I used to do is I used to, we would also have leftover rice at the end of like a stir fry or something. And I would like throw it in the fridge, chill it off, like, you know, kind of leftovers. But for breakfast sometimes, here's probably the weirdest thing I've done with rice is for breakfast, I would get like the cold leftover white rice and then put milk and like cinnamon on it. Oh. And like brown oh, sugar. Yeah. No, no, no. That's standard. Yeah. It's like horchata in a bowl. It, yeah. Basically right. it is. Yes. It's like an oatmeal, but no oats. And right. uh it's totally good. It's, no, it's delicious. Yeah. yeah, you see that all the time. It's very I versatile like white grain. Rice. My dad would put it in um, his pancake batter. That's what you're saying. You make like yeah, totally. rice pancakes. Yeah. Yes, and it just gives them this really nice like density uh. and texture. I think it's great. And then we used to call our family calls it eggs Farwell, which is like the street my grandparents lived on and my grandmother <laughs> still lives on. But it was like my my grandfather grew up in the Philippines and um, he was born in Hawaii and grew, wow. lived in the Philippines until he was like twelve or something like that. Wow. And um, until the Japanese started invading and like taking over islands and then they came back to the States and lived in California. But when he was a boy, he ate a lot of Filipino food. And so he just grew to really love rice and mm-hmm. um, he'd put rice in everything. But he would put rice in his scrambled eggs. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. I'm sure. Yeah, it's real good with lots of like fresh cracked pepper. Ooh, it's killer. there it is. You reminded me with the pancakes that my wife and I last weekend uh, for breakfast, made um, ricotta cheese pancakes. Oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, they were so thick and dense. But also fluffy. <sighs> but also fluffy, yes, you get it. It's like ricotta cookies. Totally. Italian ricotta cookies. Yes. Oh, I've never had those, I don't think. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard you make that sound, Torna. I like this. <laughs> this is good energy. <laughs> uh, I do love. He's He's happy because he's having a... Mint julep. A giant mint julep. Whoa. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm a little late now, but last week I wanted to do mint juleps. Mm. I was lazy and came in late and then you weren't here. So it was like, eh, G&T's. But because the Kentucky Derby was a couple of weeks ago, I thought, oh, we'll do some mint oh, juleps right. in celebration. I don't know why we would celebrate the Kentucky <laughs> Derby. I've never even been. I'd like to. But yeah, we're drinking some good old mint juleps. My first time. I dig it. They're a great summer drink. Tons of mint. Mm-hmm. Sugar. 
muddled together. Then you take ice and crush it real fine, fill the glass with ice, and then I put two and a half ounces of bourbon on top, stir it up, and then oh, it gets frosty, starts to melt, and it's real sweet. Summertime drinker. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I was not expecting, the bourbon was a twist for me. I was expecting something like tequila or something with the mint and the... I always thought it was gin for some reason. Right? I don't know why, but... More of a clear alcohol. You it, could do it. There is Bourbon a, makes more sense. I think you came Southern. over... No, you you definitely came over last summer for a dinner, and I made gin juleps. That G- gin, sounds gin, familiar. Gin, mint juleps. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. So that's It, it does exist. So it's a real drink. This is where your confusion lies. I... Yeah. On my end of things, I never get confused because I am cozied up with my delicious 16-year-old Lagavulin neat, my friends. There she is. We're here. We're doing it. Poured out of a beautiful crystal decanter that my sister-in-law got me for Christmas. Nice. It is... I'm looking... It is the essence of fanciness and pleasure. Do, Uh, Do you have like a designated like rocks glass or something that you drink out of? I have I have a few. I have a I have two glasses that I keep in the studio. They're more simple, um, just a small whiskey glass. But I have some nice crystal glasses that match my decanter downstairs on the tray in the living room that I keep on display for people who come over and want to drink. So nice. And I do That's I right. do have granite stones in the freezer. Should I ever? Oh yeah, yeah. I remember feel, that. Should I ever feel the urge to chill my whiskey? But I would not deign to disgrace my whiskey <laughs> with water. So, <laughs> chilled to rock. To be fair, though, have rock. you ever tried Lagavulin with like a couple drops of water? No. This is the benefit of the the stone. Is like I run it underwater before I drop it in the whiskey. So you get the effect. So it's a little of- yes. Oh, but ice I, melting, I, but not. Yeah, no, it's but, different. But I'm gonna be oh. honest. I like the. I don't know. Do you call it activated when you put water in whiskey? I like the yeah, unactivated but, whiskeys. Yeah, but some whiskeys just don't taste better or really have enough un or uh, soluble chemicals in it to even matter. This one is pure enough. You don't need to augment. Sure. It yeah. An eyedropper of water or anything. Good to know. To clarify what we're talking about, if you put ice in your whiskey, uh, okay, all right, back up. There is no wrong way to drink whiskey. You should drink whiskey however you like to drink whiskey. But if you put ice in your whiskey, you're doing it wrong. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. It waters it down. If your whiskey's so disgusting that you need to make it cold to taste better, spend a couple extra bucks. (laughs) <laughs> however there can be or there often is a benefit to putting a few drops of water into your whiskey of choice because a lot of whiskeys have water soluble chemicals in them that are activated or dissolved when you drop a few droplets of water into them and what it can do is release some flavors release some aromatics and they kind of all rise to the surface. 
So some whiskeys you put a few drops on, you'll get like a really pungent nose smell. And then like your first sip will have all these weird flavors. Has the kick. Yeah, that we would never pick up unless they were dissolved in water. And then it kind of goes back to tasting like your whiskey normally does. Mm. And there's people that are out there. They're like, okay, the Glen Levitt 18, I think tastes best with four drops of water. And the Lagavulin, you know, 16, I like with one drop. And my McLaren 21 is a three dropper. Like people go nuts. <laughs> Absolutely. People can go nuts about anything. I yeah. like that. I like the fandom. <laughs> I think fandom now, is, is there, the right word for it. I think that's an appropriate word for it. Is there a history to this tasty bev? Oh, um, not entirely sure. I know it was, well, claimed to have been invented sometimes in like the mid 1800s. Um, Southern drink. It's kind of like the drink of the Kentucky Derby. All I know is that the, I believe it was the governor of Kentucky at some point, like in the late 1800s, like brought it to the White House or Washington and like introduced people to it. He's like, yo, yo you gotta try this. <laughs> this shit is lit. Was that like, like a post-Civil War, like peace offering or something? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, late 19th century. I, I mean, they, you know, they've been brewing whiskey forever and, and sugar and mint. Some crazy son gun was like, I'm going to do it. We'll put these together. <laughs> That's good stuff. The only history I have to offer is that the distillery of Lagavulin officially dates from 1816 when John Johnston and Archibald Campbell Brooks constructed two distilleries on the site. One of them eventually became Lagavulin, taking over the other. Are you reading from the label? No, he knows it. <laughs> I know these things, fam. <laughs> Just kidding. He's like, it's not on the label, it's on the website. <laughs> Correct. Um, moving on. Did you see, though, the new commercial with the new 11-year-old Offerman line that Lagavulin is offering? No. No. I've never seen a commercial for whiskey. Okay. Where do you see so, commercials for Nick Offerman of Ron Swanson fame from Parks and Recreation mm -hmm. on NBC? He pretty much made Lagavulin famous and he is now basically like their spokesperson in America. Like they sell That's a cool. lot more whiskey because of Ron Swanson and Nick Offerman. And they would sell more than Ron Swanson if we were. Ultimately, yes. But, Ultimately, yeah. my designs for drinking it every week is eventually to. <laughs> Present to Lagavulin executives that, hey, I already promote the hell out of you. Like, let's make this official. Um, right, exactly. But, uh, yeah, so they're doing a new line for Father's Day this year. It's an 11-year-old of their standard whiskey. However, it is finished in a, uh, in a Guinness cask. Ooh. And I am... I am beyond excited for this whiskey. <laughs> I will be buying myself a bottle because I want it and my own father a bottle because it's Father's Day and designed to celebrate the day. And I'm I'm so excited. That's pretty cool. Oh, I, I might have to pick one of those up. Actually, that sounds good. Yeah, I think they're on pre-order now. I think they're literally pre-ordering oh bottles. I don't want to pre-order stuff. I need to look into <laughs> it, but yeah. 
So worth it though. You drop the money now and then when it finally releases, it shows up and you're like, I forgot I ordered this. Yes, thank you. That happens to me with books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like read about a book in the journal or like JB reviews it and I order on Amazon and it's always like I have a book pre-ordered right now, actually. Oh. And then one time I fucking I guess I forgot I pre-ordered it and I pre-ordered it again. <laughs> and two copies came. And I was like, fuck, all right. Oops. I like the author, so I supported him. There you go. <laughs> what book did you pre-order? The one that I accidentally ordered two of was um Apocalypse Never by Michael Schellenberger. Mm. And then the one that is coming now, um, I should look up the author's name, but it's called um, Unsettled. There was a great book review about it in the Wall Street Journal. And it is by Stephen Coonan, um, but he's a physicist and he is basically, um, he's, uh, he's a brilliant guy. Um, and from I've watched an interview with him and read a bit about the book. He was one of Obama's top scientists during his administration the book as the title sort of suggests dives into like what is really known within climate science and what is unknown and why it fucking matters to know the difference between the two sweet yeah i'm very much looking forward to reading it i probably could use a book like that yeah i'll I'll loan it to you when i'm done i'm sure you'll finish it in the amount of time that it would take me to read the first chapter. I so. don't know if that's true, but... Kat, if you accidentally pre-order a second copy, you could just give one to Stephen. <laughs> there there go. There, there's always a chance of that. Out of the generosity of your forgetfulness, we might have <laughs> reading material for a few days. I like that. Generosity of my forgetfulness. Hey, you know. It's a thing. It is, All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good segue, honestly. I didn't mean to do that, but <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> so, yeah, what about what about climate change and, uh, and energy? Huh? What say you? What say me? Well, um, I actually didn't really, like, plan, like, an intro to this whole topic, but... So if you guys have any thoughts... I'm flying of, from the like, seat of my pants. Well, first word. of all, my friends, let us... Let everyone know that they can read Kat's own words on realclearenergy.org. That's true. Correct. But you've done now three pieces relating to clean energy, correct? Yes. You have Real Clean Energy publication. You have a publication in The Hill. In The Hill. Which is rad. Yeah. And then a third one, correct? (laughs) Yeah, in uh, The National Interest on Nuclear Energy. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Three pieces on energy. That's <laughs> sick. <laughs> yeah. So that stuff's available at those outlets. And I also have a link tree in my bio on Instagram. Sweet. Sort of the gist, broadly speaking, of kind of all three of those pieces is um, that we, as we try to transition away from carbon emitting fossil fuel energy sources increasingly most of our policymakers um are pushing for renewables like solar and wind and the reality behind those technologies is rather ugly and 
in fact, they're quite impractical. And not beyond that, uh, they're also actually quite environmentally sort of devastating, actually. Uh, and so I don't think those are good alternatives. I think nuclear is a better alternative. And I think it's fair to say that there is no practical way to phase out fossil fuels without embracing nuclear. Solar and wind mm. can't do it for us. So to address solar and wind briefly, you know, my, my cursory readings, I'm, I'm finding a lot of information even just about like noise pollution from wind farms and basically creating enormous parking lots to <laughs> set these things up. Is it? Oh yeah. I mean, so there's a surface area question, especially with solar panels too. You can't necessarily stack those things. They kind of have to be in direct yeah. sunlight, right? Right. So they yeah. spread out more than they do stack. When you say solar and wind as a, as a strategy, is this is this more along the lines of like a utility company setting these kind of things up, or what? What are your views of someone like personally putting solar panels on their home or something like that? Yeah, I think if somebody wants can afford to do that, um, fucking have at it. I suppose realistically, that will make absolutely no difference in terms of curbing global greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm. No difference whatsoever. Okay. And in fact, if you look back farther, um, kind of in the life cycle of those technologies, there's a huge carbon footprint with the production of solar panels and wind mm -hmm. turbines. So in order to really like uh, get to a ratio where your your use of them and your energy consumption from them outweighs the carbon footprint of their production you have to scale it mm, okay and that's where you run into the the impracticality of it because they as you were pointing out henning they require so they're very they are not energy dense meaning um each individual solar panel doesn't really produce very much energy right mm -hmm. so you have to use you have to multiply it and that requires land which practically speaking we're talking like hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of acres. And that ultimately means habitat. That means wildlife habitat. Mm -hmm, 100%. Totally. So like there's a huge environmental problem there. And I mean, I think realistically we're never going to get to a point where we can actually consume that much open space to solely run off of solar and wind. I think any, you know, I think politicians and lobbyists will kind of, they have talking points and to sell the public on these ideas. I don't think anybody seriously expects to do that. Right. Cause but we're, the other environment, cause we're relying on like the wind has to blow and the clouds need to be gone. And that, that might be oversimplifying, right, so but no, that's actually not really. It's it, that's pretty accurate. They're, they produce power intermittently. That's the other completely impractical sure. part like of solar them. during nighttime um, is rather ineffective. Right. And, the, and we don't have storage solutions for energy right now. Exactly. Either. Yeah. So there's a lot of wasted. Yeah. The battery yeah. technology isn't up to par. So and, you know, it very well may be eventually um, that doesn't get you around the low power density land hungry issue. But as of right now, we don't have the battery capacity to store the power. So there are communities, as you just pointed out, Torna, where like they're producing an abundance of energy in one community 
like, you know, somewhere in Arizona. Right. And they produce more energy than they can consume, but they can't store it. And so by the time people are actually using energy at night, turning their lights on and their heaters on, et cetera, et cetera, that energy isn't there anymore. Right. right? And um, and so there's, you know, in Biden's infrastructure package, he's called for like building, you know, tens of thousands of miles of transmit transition transmission lines to try to get that power from these rural places out to, you know, to to urban centers. Again, there's a whole host of sort of like habitat land use questions that go along with that. Um, But even before we get I mean, and the reality is scaling to that point is a hurdle in and of itself. And there are environmental challenges with solar and wind earlier in the technology's life cycle. And that's because they require rare earth minerals. um, Yeah. Yep. Which have to be mined for. um, And. Those, they're not mined anywhere around here. No, they sure aren't. Um, <laughs> and largely, um, China's like dominated that trade for a couple decades now. But and and in recent years, they're kind of losing their edge because other countries are are kind of getting in the game. But they still, I think it's like over eighty percent of the mm-hmm. market they huh. they basically control. Um, and it's not only the mining; it's also the refining. So like, even if we are purchasing rare earths from Chile, for example, they still China largely dominates the refining industry. So. And the problem there is there are very few environmental precautions taken. There uh, are. I think about a dozen photo photovolactic solar panel companies that are tied to their their supply chains are have been discovered to be tied to um forced labor of the Uyghur Muslims in mm-hmm. Xinjiang province. That's, that's coming to light like this week. Yeah. And the news is kind of picking yeah, up and people which are being I'm, pushed on it. I'm and... glad people are finally paying attention to that because it's pretty disgusting. Mm-hmm. Right. And like so so yeah, having these minerals um being dependent on them and on abusive regimes overseas is problematic, obviously. And there's just a ton of, I mean, even if it, even if we mine for it here, um, which I think there's there's a really reasonable argument to make to mine for the for the minerals here because we have deposits of them throughout the United States um, of different type of cobalt of a variety of different rare earths, and we certainly have more uh, kind of a higher standard for processing and, and, and more environmental precautions taken and we're not using slave labor. So, you know, there right. would be a better operation here, but it still requires mining. It does. And it requires all of the upstart and the infrastructure to start a mining, you know, facility or a mining endeavor like that. Mm-hmm. And then you people, I, I don't know. It's like people aren't really weighing, like, is it worth it to pursue solar? at that scale to do it all from home so to speak like well because that's and that's the other question like yes we have deposits here and yes we would take more precautions and it would be a cleaner operation because right now i mean there's like there's so much like groundwater pollution and air pollution associated mm-hmm. with the operations throughout china and and in the congo like most of the world's cobalt comes from the congo and like there's child labor used to extract it and you know groundwater is polluted and like whole areas are toxic and i mean it's it's fucked (laughs) to put it bluntly (laughs) 
And even if we were to do, you know, mine for stuff here, there isn't to to scale this to the degree we would need to to really power everybody's home and for, you know, this Biden's green dreams to come true of like everybody driving an electric car, which requires the batteries in that require rare earths. Right. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. you need to be able to plug it into a grid that isn't relying upon fossil fuels, which ours is right now. Right. Right. And so that would have to be reliant upon solar and wind, which produces power intermittently. So you have to have some kind of baseload power source that's that's reliable. Mm. And if you don't right now, the only baseload power sources we know of and have are coal, natural gas and nuclear. Mm -hmm. So like. There's kind of no way around. Not embracing one of those options and we don't. There's an argument to be made that like we don't even have enough rare earths in to to do this to scale to the degree that we want. Like there isn't enough capacity right now to even extract as much as we need and to and to process it and refine it. I mean, the amount, as you were saying, Tony, the amount of infrastructure and not just like what Biden's talking about is infrastructure, but like the amount of like capital investment to get us to the point where we have like what we need to extract the materials safely and environmentally like f- in an environmentally responsible way and refine it and process it and ship it and build the material to like actually build out this infrastructure it's it's a tall order it is and the amount of pushback you would get i mean any mining operations get immense pushback that's just been the trend over the last couple of years. Any- well, yeah, there's like regulatory barriers that prevent that yeah, from taking yeah, place here, which yeah. we're going to have to. That's a choice we're going to have to make. Right. You know, do we want to just I mean, at this point, the model we have is wealthy people in urban centers can buy solar panels and put it on their house and drive a Tesla that plugs into a grid that's still like over 80% relying upon fossil fuels mm-hmm. and feel good about and themselves. feel like they're doing something. <laughs> and meanwhile, you look at the carbon footprint of those technologies and you mm-hmm. look at the other environmental degradation and you look at the human rights abuses and it makes no goddamn difference in terms of curbing global greenhouse it gas doesn't. emissions. And vehicles are not the problem. Emissions nowadays yeah. are insane. Yeah. I, I want to read you some stats here of, of a research. This is, from Edmonds, but this is like my fun fact that I tell everyone now. People that complain about like, oh, you drive a truck, like yada, yada, yada. This is a 2011 Ford Raptor, not even modern, like modern revamped Ford Raptors, but Ford Raptor, right? Big truck. You think of it as, you know, brapping about, broom, broom. <laughs> yeah. It was comparing a f- 2011 Ford Raptor to a gas powered leaf blower. You'd have to drive a Raptor. 235 miles, stopping every 505 seconds and doing a cold restart, turning your car off, turning it back on, to emit the same level of hydrocarbons for simply idling a two-stroke leaf blower for less than 10 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So if you mow your lawn or have a leaf blower, you're the problem. You're... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. Well, and that's where and that is why like the shale revolution using more natural gas and and the sort of carbon intensive parts of our economy becoming more efficient 
that's where we've seen reductions in emissions yep. in the United States. And then this the other point, which like people are aware of, and I feel like people don't like to hear, but the reality is the United States only accounts for about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So us like spending trillions to build, you know, Biden wants to spend, what is it, 700 and, and uh, let me get the exact number, $174 billion on vehicle electrification. So like, you know, he wants to build 500,000 EV charging stations and he wants to electrify the entire federal vehicle fleet and things like that. That one, again, all of those cars are plugging into a grid that's still using fossil fuels. The charging stations are, there's no demand for that. Less than 2% of the cars on the road are electric vehicles currently. And it will do virtually nothing to curb global greenhouse gas emissions. Do you think there's any... We only make up 15%. And... And it's a fraction of that that's the result of transportation, as mm-hmm. you're pointing out. So what? So I guess largely, my, or you know, kind of more broadly, my point is that when the more I've looked at what Biden and and other politicians of his ilk have proposed, the less serious it seems. Right. And in reality, again, I'm cynical. This is just a handout to special interests. That's all this is. When you look at it, you know, when you look at at kind of the what the what they're pushing and 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 the amount of money they want to spend, I just I it's to a point where I I just can't even fathom. I'm like these people are truly either this incompetent or it's special interest and they're evil and they're and it's malice they're just they just want to waste our money. And it's, and it's wild. And it's like, why don't wow. we pump just pennies on the dollar of what he wants to spend to revamp and fix our grid infrastructure so it's protected? And I think that we should be pumping fossil fuels as much as we can for the next however long it takes to develop nuclear. Like, fossil fuels are great. Use them. We know how to use them. And buy time and dump all that money into useful research. Are, are we at a point where I mean, nuclear needs more research? I mean, it, it seems like it's been developed. I, to I think point. it needs more research for smaller, more condensed reactors. Mm, but yeah, okay. we know like facilities are safe and everything like that. But um, yeah, the small modular right. reactors. Yeah. But even those are like, there's a few, I was just reading about this the other day. There's a few, um, and I apologize, I don't have that in front of me right now. But there are a few that um, are. There's a few prototypes that are getting very close to being marketable. Like the technology is good. It's a matter of like cost efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a few that that a few companies that are confident that they're getting to a point where they're actually um, marketable. And there's also regulatory barriers in the way mm-hmm. that like prevent nuclear from being economical, right? And like if it's competing with solar and wind, which is heavily subsidized, it's going to be even more subsidized if Biden's infrastructure plan is passed. The way that it um as we were talking about how it sort of 
it produces power intermittently and has like there are moments where there's like a there are periods of time where there's like a, a like a almost a, a glut of energy that distorts like energy prices and makes it harder for something like consistent like nuclear to compete so there's there's like the, it, there's a mix of problems there mm-hmm. one like i think the small modular stuff like needs to be that tech needs to be improved so that it's more cost efficient there's also regulatory hurdles in the way and there's also just like perverse incentives created by the government that distort energy markets but again, if we're willing to spend trillions of dollars to dump into solar and wind because we think climate change is an existential threat, why not dump that money into a technology that produces reliable, consistent, power-dense energy that doesn't have the same environmental like ramifications as solar and wind, doesn't require the same amount of land? And again, produces power consistently. Mm. Like, Just maintaining turbine fields is insane. The amount of crews that are out there all the time and they're spread out and they're driving vehicles back and forth. And well, yeah, well, that's where like carbon, <clears throat> that their carbon footprint comes right, in. Right, right. And they're also the other problem, too. <laughs> there's a myriad of problems. But like Biden talks about how he's going to create like good, clean green energy jobs, union jobs, and they're going to pay well. Well, the reality is they're low-skilled jobs and they don't pay well. And they, it's actually interesting. You look into some of these companies, they have a problem like hiring and retaining people because they aren't, they can't pay them enough because it doesn't require, I mean, like the skill doesn't demand a higher wage. So what, we have to subsidize that entire industry so that they can, be paid an attractive wage. I mean, the whole thing is completely, it's completely unsustainable without like, without government subsidies, creating like both the demand and then also providing the supply too. And the government loves that. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People. And when we really embody who we are erotically, like I I, I talk about embodying the erotic self, you strip down to really come to know, like that deep inner knowing that you are beautiful and perfect just the way you are. And when you really know that, you exude it and you fully embody this confidence, this Christ confidence, really. And when you think about it, that's just kind of how I reconcile what it means for me. It's just knowing that I am fully complete. And now back to our conversation. Feeling cynical tonight. You, I know. I'm sorry. I hate to just be like bearer of bad news and shit all over it, but it's just it's there. There are just these realities that like 
increasingly we're going to have to face. Um, and another one of them is is also the life cycle of these technologies on the other end. They only last solar panels and wind turbines only last about 25 years on average. And on the high end, it's like 30 years. And as of right now, we barely recycle any of that material. And some folks will say like, well, in theory, it could be recycled. Some of it could be. It's it's not cost efficient Mm -hmm. to recycle it right now. So nobody's recycling it. And largely, it's being shipped overseas. And guess where it's being shipped to? It's being shipped back to Asia. Yep. Um, You know what they do with it? Well, there's... Burn it or dump it in the ocean. Well, the Chinese Communist Party, yeah, basically doesn't, you know, dispose of it in an environmentally safe or responsible way. Um, Or it's shipped to really impoverished communities. And, you know, and those people just have to live with this toxic crap leaking into their ground soil and their groundwater, you know. And it's really, it's kind of this, like, I mean, we're really, talk about, like, neocolonialism i mean we're kind of like raping the poorest nations of the world of their of their resources creating products that make us feel good in the united states and then when we're done with it we ship the toxic waste back to those poor nations and it's their problem to deal with i mean Mm. it's pretty it's kind of a gross cycle and it's definitely not sustainable and it's not environmentally friendly that's the thing like it's not good for the environment and this stuff, like the waste problem is is kind of overwhelming. And like the pace and scale of it, like we're going to it's going to be a completely overwhelming, like kind of catastrophic problem within the next decade because um, it's just I mean, it's accumulating at such a quick rate. So it's just, you know, and again, when you really dig into this stuff and you realize like it's really not going to do much in terms of curbing emissions and subsequently doing anything about climate change, anthropogenic climate change, then like, what are we doing all of this for? You know, we're creating like loads of externalities, but some people are getting really wealthy off in the process. So mm-hmm. I guess good for them. Right. <laughs> God, mm. it's a bit of a nightmare. Henning, do you have any thoughts? We've been ranting. <laughs> I have a few. Um, First question regarding nuclear. Do you think there is just like a pop culture fear of nuclear uh, because of like Fukushima and the one in Russia that I'm forgetting the name of? Damn it. Chernobyl. Thank you. Yes. Do you think think nuclear (laughs) just has a bad rep because people are afraid of that happening? Yeah, for sure. And I've actually... um, if you kind of look at the history of nuclear, like shortly after World War II and, you know, obviously we developed the atomic bomb, split the atom, discovered this technology. There was like a lot of um, excitement in the West of like, a lot of excitement about this technology. And they realized then like, wow, this could provide us like unlimited power and energy and it's could be cheap. And this could be amazing. Um, And sort of as there emerged, understandably, kind of like the anti-nuclear weapons crowd lobby, nuclear technology was sort of like lumped into that same category and 
was really intensely lobbied against um and lots of environmental organizations like Greenpeace or the Sierra Club uh Sierra Club first Greenpeace came later but like basically they had marketing campaigns against nuclear and um lobbied against nuclear and were actually advocating for the use of fossil fuels because they were so worried about sort of the the dangers that nuclear posed and then of course those two major accidents in fukushima and mm-hmm. and chernobyl sort of painted like a real life picture of what could happen if you had you know a, a nuclear plant meltdown there's debate about how much like how damaging any of those accidents really were in terms of like causing cancer or or like environmental degradation. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. There is, yeah. It's also worth considering like there have been two notable accidents in nuclear's history and I mean it's used around the world. It makes up 20% of our energy production in the United States mm, today. Yeah. So it's kind of actually a pretty good record um, and the technology's improved and it's safer than <laughs> it was. And then. I don't know. I don't know much about Chernobyl truly, but the other accidents or other scares we've had are taken care of or generally they're safe falls. And is it what was in the seventies? There was the one in Pennsylvania that mm-hmm. had like a meltdown, but they recovered it and it was a scare. Yeah. But, they stopped it before right. it actually turned into a, a serious problem. Huh? I think I think it's also worth considering that like life is about trade-offs. It's not about a perfect solution, right? And like if nuclear technology has improved, which is which it has, and you know, waste disposal is the other challenge that people point to. But solar panels produce, I think it's 300 times more waste per unit of energy than nuclear does. Wow. And nuclear's waste, yes, is toxic, but it's the way it's handled, it's contained basically in like solid concrete. And mm-hmm. it's actually rather small. And that's stored, you know, in like a heavily protected area. Right. Yeah. Um right. it's limited, right? It's limited in in its in like the amount of land that's required to deal with it. Putting it in a mountain is not really like that's not really the modern approach. <laughs> right. Um, and the French are figuring out how to recycle it. How to like use it for more fuel. Oh, so whoa. there's advances being made in that space. Sweet. And it's one of those things when you it's like if you really actually care, especially about like human trafficking and slavery and child labor, right. like at some point you have to be like it is worth putting some, in quote, toxic material in the ground. Well, and it's not even going in the ground. No, but exactly. It's above ground. But right, yeah. Right. Yeah. To attempt to stop that. Well, again, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. It's a trade off, right? right? Like, do we want to have something that I, has. I, I, I like thinking about it now. I'm like, I don't even know if that's a trade off. Yeah. Well, but again, think about this. I mean, from like. Again, kind of thinking about this like neo-colonialist sure. framing. We don't want to take the risk, which is relatively small, of ramping up nuclear use because we're afraid of 
of there being a meltdown and it impacting our communities, even though we know that like there are lots of like measures and and technology in place to kind of mitigate that risk. And we also know that like the waste disposal is pretty manageable, but we don't want to take any risk on that end. Right. And for us, all of the all of the risk associated with solar and wind, we just ship it abroad. Mm -hmm. We just get rid of it. We just we just don't deal with it. And again, I kind of think that's it's kind of it's gross. Mm. It's it's kind of a gross worldview. Yeah. Help help whether people are aware of it or not. But yeah, so, no, I would agree with that. So 100%. at the advent, you, you kind of already described some lobbying efforts that happened around suppressing nuclear development. Um, but help me understand the regulations that are in place that are hindering nuclear really taking off. And I don't have a good answer okay. for that. Actually, is it just a case of, uh, again, just lobbyists and special interests having, you know, the ear of a choice legislator to keep things from taking off? Yeah, I think it's it's a, again, I won't know like the specific regulations off the top of my head and I apologize for that. But like it's it's the process of like having a new plant built and accepted into a community Hmm. there's just there are like loads of regulatory hurdles and red tape to get through that it's incredibly costly and time consuming Mm -hmm. um so it's just like there's just a huge barrier to entry basically okay um and when they're competing with a technology (laughs) that is that it has quite the opposite approach right like it has a very low barrier to entry and in fact the government's like picking you up and pushing you over over the over the goal line you know like it's subsidized like it's just um it's not an even playing field for the two technologies do you think some of that barrier to entry is why the government has chosen to subsidize wind and solar as long as they have because they recognize that it's you know, it, you can't have like a nuclear well, they plant have the- startup right a couple startup bros and hoodies and max <laughs> well i don't know i mean there are startups for these i mean these small modular technologies like those are basically like small startups that are figuring out those technologies oh, okay like, so you could and the government is in the complete i mean they're, they're they're the gatekeepers they're the ones who could you know deregulate that industry sure. yeah um in a reasonable way and at the same time as as we have these like regulatory barriers increasingly the nuclear plants that are are online and that have been producing reliable clean efficient power they're being taken offline diablo canyon is the last nuclear plant in california that's about to be taken offline wow and it's a shame and it's also at the same time that like california is suffering regular blackouts in part because their grids increasingly trying to rely on solar and wind and it produces power intermittently so it's not consistent and 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 sort of germany tried to do this and moved away from nuclear and they ultimately had to increase their coal consumption they were importing coal from russia you know so it's like well wait a second what i thought the ultimately the goal here is to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels because we're worried about carbon emissions but in this twisted convoluted process um we often end up being like 
dependent again on other types of baseload energies. You know, again, it's it's a it's we have we have very real trade offs that we have to choose between. Um, and if we're worried about carbon emissions and we're worried about anthropogenic climate change, the only baseload energy alternative that's clean is nuclear. Mm-hmm. That's all we have right now, and that'll change probably over time. But for now, that's mm-hmm. all we have. Yeah. Do you think in the meantime, as nuclear develops or other technologies are discovered, come online, however you want to say that, do you think in the meantime there is any value in encouraging electric vehicles and not like mandating them? Like, I think it's absolutely bonkers that anyone thinks they can just tell car manufacturers in America to be like, you can't make gas cars anymore. That's insane. <laughs> that is buck wild to me. Yeah. Um, but do you think there's any benefit in increasing in incentive for at the consumer level for electric vehicles that increasingly become more cost effective as, as there's more demand, maybe the incentive is stacked such that like me as the person who goes and buys the Tesla or the new, you know, all electric Jeep Wrangler or whatever, it like tax breaks or like tax incentives somehow that encourage me to do that. Because to me, like, you know, studying personal solar panels, like there's no way my wife and I consume enough energy to make like putting solar panels on our roof viable. But if we had an electric vehicle and I was charging that thing overnight, like, I I think I could feasibly start seeing at least like a a net almost like a cancellation like I'm producing enough energy for my own personal consumption and in that way I both lessen the burden on the you know the base power grid that's built on coal or natural gas right now as like uh, maybe it's not a perfect system especially what you've have what you've highlighted as the you know, the life cycle of a solar panel being like a quarter of a century, but maybe as a bridge, as we, as we work to get to nuclear, do you think any of that is viable or ought to be encouraged? I think, um, that if you can afford to do that and you can make it efficient and actually, as you say, like produce enough solar energy to power your electric, all electric Mm -hmm. vehicle, which my landlord does. Mm-hmm. She's able to do that. She powers her Tesla with solar panels yep. on her home. Good for you. Cool. That isn't going to do anything about <laughs> global greenhouse gas emissions. It's just not. And like, and if you can do that and, and that's important to you, fine. Scaling that is completely Could, impractical. Is there, is there no room for spending, just a... You know, I guess I can't say free market because I've already said it might require stacking the deck in someone's favor to a certain point. But there is there no room for a market that would basically like as as demand grows, you know, uh, like better manufacturing practices come online for solar panels and for the vehicles themselves and for the batteries and all that and like push things in a positive direction just by more people getting on board with it and potentially driving the price down by that you know if you create enough demand enough manufacturing comes online and 
yeah. you know, prices start sinking and then it becomes viable for someone making, you know, $50,000 a year or something like that. Yeah. Um, as things stand now, it's not viable for somebody making $50,000 oh, totally. a year. Totally. I mean, right. Um, so that's a challenge. I think like, yeah, for sure. If, if there's like actual demand for this technology, the market will supply it. And those are people's individual choices. Sure. I don't, I don't see anything particularly wrong with that. I think on a small scale individual level, I think that that can be that you could mitigate environmental damage that way. I think, I think, uh, it will never without government subsidization ever be scalable for all of the impractical reasons that we've outlined. So I think, yeah, on a, on a small scale, if someone can afford it and they want to, to invest in that and kind of like zero out their impact, that's great. But there's still kind of the, the dirty underbelly of where this technology is coming from and the environmental challenges there. I mean, let's just say we get to a point in the future where we are mining for it here. We're controlling that process. It isn't as dirty. We're not, you know, using slave labor um, and people can afford to put solar panels on their homes. And somehow, you know, we get to a point where like recycling it is cost efficient and we're actually recycling the materials and people are driving can charge their cars fully off of the solar power like yeah that's that that seems like a reasonable future Mm -hmm. but again i think that can only work on a small scale for individuals and ultimately the grid that you know powers your stove and your heater and your water pump and everything else is going to have to run on a different kind of baseload energy that's not solar and wind totally Um, so i think that in the future there could be kind of like a boutique Mm-hmm. market for it that's organic and reasonable but i but again i don't think it's scalable. on the flip side too though even on an individual level this all takes a lot of deregulation because you have all sorts of regulations on basically well, a lot of cities limit how reflective your building can be so there's reflective limitations so you can't have certain materials and there's like a, a threshold of oh your building's too shiny that can affect putting panels. We also have issues with being metered off of your solar in Montana at least. Yeah. You're still metered if it was easier. Yeah, she a lot of the energy my landlord produces just goes back into the grid, mm-hmm. right? That's how it works. Yeah. And like she doesn't get like compensated or reimbursed right. for the power that she's generating. It just like right. goes into the grid and other people use it. Because you're not allowed to be unmetered which is ridiculous right right yeah or you should be compensated right so if if you'd be willing to incentivize people i mean that's an incentive right Mm -hmm. oh you're producing more electricity than you need oh here's a check right you're selling energy now you're an energy business person Mm -hmm. that's pretty cool totally but that's not of course they wouldn't let you do that right now too many special interests but that so that's the (laughs) thing there are and to your point henning like there is there is a practical there probably is a practical place for this technology um and and maybe we're not there yet and that's not you know I'm not a luddite like that's I'm not you know that's not to say that we shouldn't like keep pursuing and investing in and driving down the cost and making things more efficient and figuring out how to recycle like for sure but I don't support the government indebting future generations to 
hand out trillions of dollars to particular industries who are doing something that is at this point in time there isn't a demand for and it's not fucking efficient like that's we're wasting resources and we're and because we're ramping it up before we've gotten to a place where like we know how to produce this stuff in a clean way we know how to recycle it in an efficient way we're we're putting the cart before the horse and we're like we're we're wading into territory where we're going to be way in over our heads and we're not going to we're not going to achieve its stated aim mm-hmm. so it's re- i mean it's really just a huge waste of resources go nuclear yeah exactly <laughs> absolutely go nuclear <laughs> i'm pro nuclear <laughs> same it seems like you ought to be yeah and i didn't like the thing is, when I started like being interested in this topic and, and researching it, I I didn't start from a place of being bought into nuclear. I became bought into nuclear by like realizing these other technologies didn't make sense. Where did you start? I'm curious um, your your origin story, as it were, for your interest here. Well, I, I mean, I remember I remember the infamous Solyndra, the solar company that um was like a classic example of this kind of government waste that we're describing um, under the Obama administration in his in his uh, recovery stimulus. Um, they got several hundred billion dollars worth of loans from the federal government and it went to nothing. The whole fucking thing just like because, again, it was it was the government trying to force demand um, that didn't exist, you know, and and the technology wasn't there and it was way too it was not cost efficient at all. And then like multiply Solyndra by like thousands. Right. And it was just this total boondoggle. It's so frustrating because you're like, OK, the American people were robbed of their money. And yeah. then a couple people probably got a fat check. Yeah. And then the rest is right. Just in shambles. It's and, crony capitalism. Yeah. Mm. And for and for these same politicians to like lament, you know, corporatism and and big business and, you know, they have these like sort of fear mongering language around free markets. But what they implement is is the most perverted kind of twisted version of free markets. Right. It's crony capitalism. It's like big business in bed with like big government. And we're back. To Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> we always circle back to always. Atlas Shrugged. Oh, Literally, half the book is about renewable energy. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never read Atlas Shrugged. What? I've read okay. The Fountainhead. No, okay. I haven't read it either. And I've read, I, um, That means I'm the only true anthem. libertarian on this podcast. <laughs> wow. Okay. I've read the scriptures, you, my friends. The- I've read the Bible. <laughs> maybe that's why he kind of teeters away from it he's read <laughs> more yeah, than we have it's true <laughs> have you read the fountainhead no i haven't that's a great book you'd like okay. that it centers around an architect sweet That'd be fun you dig it atlas yeah, shrugged good. is a trip it could be two-thirds as short it did not have to be as long as it. I've did, heard as it ended up being. Yeah, I've heard that she starts just like whining at one point. And yeah, and then you said that they also like the main character like gives the same speech no, like twenty times. No, there's like there's like four or five main characters, and 
at yeah at different points in the book they all basically say the same thing and rant for literally Mm -hmm. 40 fucking pages (laughs) and you're just like i heard a different character say this already what are we doing here it's it's absurd rip it's absurd but renewable energy is in there like new forms of uh metal like beyond like steel um train industry is fun the okay so Mm. it is it it is an interesting book i think you guys should read it never watch the movies that are on amazon they are absolute shite (laughs) They're, they're weird, like aren't they? they're like I've thought about it actors, um, <laughs> barely, barely making, <laughs> barely making it good. It's 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 laughable. Um, it's a it's a good book. I think, uh, you know, you make a comment about me like teetering off libertarianism, which maybe, but my main issue with. I don't mean to critique you, Edding. I'm sorry. I don't mean to do that. I'm just teasing. Oh, I took it as a tease. Don't worry. But I, my main okay. issue with Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged is that she makes her protagonists, like, the sexiest, uh, like, most business-savvy, smart-ass, like, men and women. Like, they are... Sw- they are suave. They are like absurdly personable, and like they have this like rich. I don't know. There's this. There's this whole aura she crafts around them, and then, but then what she does with her antagonists is she does the same thing. She gives us like seven antagonists, and they're all these like spineless, like limp dicked, <laughs> like fat. Straw man. Yeah, it. just like I just I did. Yeah. I did not appreciate the straw manning of anyone that could like deign to disagree with her. She was oh, angry. Yes, she was. You know? And probably based on I'm, her life history, she has yeah. a little bit of a right to be angry. But <laughs> Oh, for sure she does. Yeah. Definitely but, she um, does. You it, know, it makes but, for challenging literature but, when when it's it's obvious at some points where it's just like, wow, she she wrote this that night and she was just pissed and she wrote <laughs> She wrote until 4.30 in the morning on, like, seven pots of coffee and didn't hire an editor for it. Like, she just. (laughs) Yeah. She, uh, I reread Anthem the other day because it's, like, I don't even know. 60 pages. It's just this, like, short. Yeah, that's that's nonfiction, uh, right? Or is it? Did she? It is. No, it's okay. fiction. Yeah, it's fiction. It's it's about this. Um, it's this obviously like dystopian future, and uh, it's like what she would envision the world would have looked like if if the Soviets had like total control of right, everything. Yeah. And um, and I would like that book. Oh my god, I'd be terrified, but I would like that book. Probably. All I w- w- was going to loan it to you, and I forgot. But um. Because it, it's a quick read. You you would enjoy it. And it's good. And I remember when I was like, I read it in high school. And I remember like thinking it was so powerful because I loved like the way she she used language as like a really powerful tool. And the the main characters, they all, nobody ever said I. Everyone referred to, because they were all part of like the collective. Mm-hmm. And so they would refer to themselves as like we. And at the end, 
the man finally like says I. And it's this like powerful moment. I remember like being like 15 being like, fuck yeah. I love Ayn Rand. (laughs) And I reread it as an adult and I found it to just be kind of like juvenile, honestly. Yeah. 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 I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But I was like, was she writing for kids? Like, no, she was definitely not writing for children. Kids section of the bookstore. It, it should no, be for like no teenagers. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it should be for teenagers. But yeah, but it was like just right, I don't know, right it was up so on funny. the shelf next to like. Oh, what's the vampire book? Uh, Twilight. Twilight. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I would rather my kids read Iron Man than Twilight. Okay. <laughs> the vampire book. Yes, oh, indeed. I never read Twilight. Me neither. I Yonose. was busy in high school reading <laughs> Grapes of Wrath. And mm. oh, right on! Yeah, I'm actually reading Grapes of Wrath for the first time uh, now. Nice. Is it good? Is I it... didn't hate it as much as I'm... people always seem to hate it. Okay. Well, I love Steinbeck. People, so I've read like all of his other books, but I've never it read that because it's a book that they were mandated to read in high school. It's a beautiful book and write about it. Like I am ready to read Grapes of Wrath again with just like a like 10 years removed from the first time I read it. Cause the first time I read it, it was literally just an assignment that I had to write papers on. And I'm like, I don't know. I think, I think that's I why a, most people just stay in that book. I have a Steinbeck book that you would love Henning. I bet. Oh yeah. It's called, it's called to a God unknown. I've heard of this. I've, I, it is, it's actually, well, tortilla flat is like my fave. Because it's so funny. Yeah. And it just, I have a lot of special You mentioned that, with that on book. your No Normal People episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I might have even mentioned this other book, but To, to a God Unknown is like close second favorite by Steinbeck. Um, it's so beautiful and powerful. And I bet you'd really appreciate it. I am totally down. You should read yeah. it. Yes, please. Yeah. I read Of Mice and Men yeah. of my own volition a few years ago. And uh, yeah. fuck, that's depressing. <laughs> yeah but it's beautiful I totally, yes i don't i love his <laughs> writing style and i have to say i maybe i should try to read the fount uh atlas shrugged atlas shrugged because um i'm sure that book is written differently than anthem yeah was. i would guess but when so. i went back and read it like i said i was kind of shocked by her writing style and with steinbeck like I read that when I was in high school and I still read it today mm. and it's always beautiful. Like it's, I've never looked back on it and thought like, Oh wow. I can't believe I was impressed by this when I was young. You know, like it's, Ooh, it's timeless in my mind. Interesting. But. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the revisiting of like adolescent loves, it can be challenging. Sometimes it's best to let those live in the <laughs> yeah. past. Right. <laughs> yeah. Never want to meet your heroes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very true. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, my friends, I'm ready to shut off my coal-powered lights. <laughs> I'll raise Same. a glass to you from Billings, Montana. Cheers. 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 Thank you for joining us on the Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at WhiskeyBenchPod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, 
Always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Hello, and welcome to No Normal People. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dixie Lee. The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors, artists, and thought leaders. Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called sonder, and this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire sonder in yours. No normal people. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast, and in Montana. Highline Media Network, normal people in normal places.